only released on small labels. Big-time record companies were strictly for the elite, for music that was sanitized and pasteurized. Someone like myself would never be allowed in except under extraordinary circumstances. But John was an extraordinary man. He explained that he saw me as someone in the long line of a tradition, the tradition of blues, jazz, and folk, not as some newfangled wunderkind on a cutting edge. Not that there was any cutting edge. Things were pretty sleepy on the Americana music scene in the late 50s and early 60s. Popular radio was at a sort of standstill and filled with empty pleasantries. It was years before the Beatles, the Who, or the Rolling Stones would breathe new life and excitement into it. What I was playing at the time were hard-lipped folk songs with fire and brimstone servings, and you didn't need to take polls to know that they didn't match up with anything on the radio. I understand sincerity, is what he said. John spoke with a rough, coarse attitude, yet he had an appreciative twinkle in his eye. Recently, he had brought Pete Seeger to the label. He didn't discover Pete, though. Pete had been around for years. He'd been in the popular folk group, The Weavers, but had been blacklisted during the McCarthy era and had a hard time, but he never stopped working. Hammond was defiant when he spoke about Seeger, that Pete's ancestors had come over on the Mayflower, that his relatives had fought the Battle of Bunker Hill, for Christ's sake, can you imagine those sons of bitches blacklisting him? They should be tarred and feathered. I'm going to give you all the facts, he said to me. You're a talented young man. If you can focus and control that talent, you'll be fine. I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to record you. We'll see what happens. He looked at the calendar, picked out a date for me to start recording, pointed to it and circled it, told me what time to come in and to think about what I wanted to play. Then he called Billy James, the head of publicity at the label, told Billy to write some promo stuff on me, personal stuff for a press release. Billy dressed Ivy League like he could have come out of Yale. Medium height, crisp black hair. He looked like he'd never been stoned a day in his life, never been in any kind of trouble. I strolled into his office, sat down opposite his desk, and he tried to get me to cough up some facts, like I was supposed to give them to him straight and square. He took out a notepad and pencil and asked me where I was from. I told him I was from Illinois, and he wrote it down. He asked me if I ever did any other work, and I told him that I had a dozen jobs. Drove a bakery truck once. He wrote that down and asked me if there was anything else. I said I'd worked construction, and he asked me where. Detroit. You traveled around? Yep. He asked me about my family, where they were. I told him I had no idea they were long gone. What was your home life like? I told him I'd been kicked out. What'd your father do? Electrician. And your mother, what about her? Housewife. What kind of music do you play? Folk music. What kind of music is folk music? I told him it was handed down songs. I hated these kind of questions. Felt I could ignore them. Billy seemed unsure of me, and that was just fine. I didn't like answering his questions anyway. Didn't feel the need to explain anything to anybody. How'd you get here, he asked me. I rode a freight train. You mean a passenger train? No, a freight train. You mean like a boxcar? Yeah, like a boxcar. Like a freight train. Okay, a freight train. I gazed past Billy, past his chair through his window across the street to an office building where I could see a blazing secretary soaked up in the spirit of something. She was scribbling, busy, occupied at a desk in a meditative manner. There was nothing funny about her. I wished I'd had a telescope. 
Billy asked me who I saw myself like in today's music scene. I told him nobody. That part of things was true. I really didn't see myself like anybody. The rest of it, though, was pure hokum. Hophead talk. I hadn't come in on a freight train at all. What I did was come across the country from the Midwest in a four-door sedan, 57 Impala, straight out of Chicago, clearing the hell out of there, racing all the way through the smoky towns, winding roads, green fields covered with snow, onward, eastbound through the state lines, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania. A 24-hour ride, dozing most of the way in the back seat, making small talk, my mind fixed on hidden interests, eventually riding over the George Washington Bridge. The big car came to a full stop on the other side and let me out. I slammed the door shut behind me, waved goodbye, stepped out onto the hard snow. The biting wind hit me in the face. At last I was here, in New York City, a city like a web too intricate to understand and I wasn't going to try. I was there to find singers, the ones I'd heard on record. Dave Van Ronk, Peggy Seeger, Ed McCurdy, Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry, Josh White, the new Lost City Ramblers, Reverend Gary Davis, and a bunch of others. Most of all, to find Woody Guthrie. New York City, the city that would come to shape my destiny. Modern Gomorrah. I was at the initiation point of square one, but in no sense a neophyte. When I arrived, it was dead-on winter. The cold was brutal, and every artery of the city was snow-packed. But I'd started out from the frost-bitten north country a little corner of the earth where the dark frozen woods and icy roads didn't faze me. I didn't know a single soul in this dark freezing metropolis, but that was all about to change, and quick. The Café Wa was a club on McDougal Street in the heart of Greenwich Village. The place was a subterranean cavern, liquorless, ill-lit, low ceiling, like a wide dining hall with chairs and tables. Opened at noon, closed at four in the morning. Somebody had told me to go there and ask for a singer named Freddie Neal who ran the daytime show. I found the place and was told that Freddie was downstairs in the basement where the coats and hats were checked, and that's where I met him. Neal was the MC of the room and the maestro in charge of all entertainers. He couldn't have been nicer. He asked me what I did, and I told him I sang, played guitar and harmonica. He asked me to play something. After about a minute, he said I could play harmonica with him during his sets. I was ecstatic. At least it was a place to stay out of the cold. This was good. Fred played for about 20 minutes and then introduced all the rest of the acts. Then came back up to play whenever he felt like it, whenever the joint was packed. The acts were disjointed, awkward, and seemed to have come from the Ted Mack Amateur Hour, a popular TV show. The audience was mostly collegiate types, suburbanites, lunch hour secretaries, sailors and tourists. Everybody performed from 10 to 15 minutes. Fred would play for however long he felt, however long the inspiration would last. Freddie had the flow, dressed conservatively, sullen and brooding, with an enigmatical gaze, peach-like complexion, hair splashed with curls, and an angry and powerful baritone voice that struck blue notes and blasted them to the rafters with or without a mic. He was the emperor of the place, even had his own harem, his devotees, you couldn't touch him. Everything revolved around him. Years later, Freddie would write the hit song, Everybody's Talking. I never played any of my own sets. I just accompanied Neil on all of his, and that's where I began playing regular in New York. 
At about 8 o'clock at night, the whole daytime menagerie would come to a halt, and then the professional show would begin. Comedians like Richard Pryor, Woody Allen, Joan Rivers, Lenny Bruce, and commercial folk singing groups like the Journeymen would command the stage. Everyone who had been there during the day would pack up. One of the guys who played the afternoons was the falsetto-speaking Tiny Tim. He played ukulele and sang like a girl, old standard songs from the 20s. Fred was constantly being pestered and pressured by moocher types who wanted to play or perform one thing or another. The saddest character of all was a guy named Billy the Butcher. He looked like he came out of Nightmare Alley. He only played one song, High Heel Sneakers, and he was addicted to it like a drug. Fred would usually let him play it sometime during the day, mostly when the place was empty. Billy would always preface his song by saying, This is for all you chicks. The butcher wore an overcoat that was too small for him, buttoned tight across his chest. He was jittery, and sometime in the past he'd been in a straitjacket in Bellevue, also had burned a mattress in a jail cell. All kinds of bad things had happened to Billy. There was a fire between him and everybody else. He sang that one song pretty good, though. Another popular guy wore a priest's outfit and red-top boots with little bells and did warped takes on stories from the Bible. Moondog also performed down here. Moondog was a blind poet who lived mostly on the streets. He wore a Viking helmet and a blanket with high fur boots. Moondog did monologues, played bamboo pipes and whistles. Most of the time he performed on 42nd Street. My favorite singer in the place was Karen Dalton. She was a tall white blues singer and a guitar player, funky, lanky, and sultry. I'd actually met her before. Run across her the previous summer outside of Denver in a mountain pass town in a folk club.